This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we're plunging headfirst into Tolkien's classic children's story, The Hobbit. Last week, we introduced the uh, Oxford professor, talking a little about his early life with his mother, Mabel, and her early death, and uh, some of the influences that shaped his view of the world. And we ended with an introduction to what Tolkien would call the secondary world. Very important concept. It's that magical place where we go in our mind when we want to enter a portal of escape from real life through our imaginations. Uh, Although we made an important distinction that escape for Tolkien is not the same as escapist living. Uh, Like we think of when we're talking about why people would abuse drugs or, or other things like that to alleviate stress. Tolkien wanted to provide a natural and healthy place of imagination that provides some delight and some enjoyment and some enchantment and a safe space. And although we think of that as being especially important for children, which, of course, it is especially important for their development, um, the success of The Hobbit and all the rest of his books seems to suggest that we all can find something positive and uh, even delightful in Tolkien's secondary world. (laughs) There's no question about that. And today, we're going to go exploring all over Tolkien's world, better known as the Third Age of Middle-Earth, because that is the best way and really the only way to understand how we should read his books. Last week, my daughters were at Universal Studios in Orlando, and when they got home, I asked them how their trip was, and Anna told me her favorite part was going to that part of Universal Studios where they created the world of Harry Potter. I asked her what she liked about it, and she told me it was the magic of the world itself. She told me the details they created made Rowling's real world feel real. You could even buy a wizard's wand at specific locations and recite magical phrases, and then magic would happen. It was fun. 
And it was fun because nobody believed they were actually performing magic, but because J.K. Rowling has done what Tolkien has done, and that is create a delightful secondary world inside our minds. Tolkien taught that there is a primal desire in our hearts to experience what he calls enchantment. And enchantment means something unexpected, something that sparks wonder. And that's a great idea. So, just as Harry Potter left the doldrums of his boring life and is carried away to Hogwarts to find sorcery and wizardry, Bilbo Baggins leaves the sameness of the Shire and enters a world that also involves spells and magical creatures like we're going to meet today. Wizards and dwarves and trolls and elves and goblins. When we enter Rowling's or Tolkien's world, we get to meet all these creatures right along with them. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to start by meeting dwarves and elves and trolls and goblins. We'll stop with goblins, but beware. We also have more. There's wargs and wereboats and giant spiders and a necromancer and a dragon. Just a few chapters away. <laughs> but today we end at chapter five. Uh, I noticed that many of those creatures you mentioned are not positive things. No. <laughs> it's interesting to point out that secondary worlds aren't perfect places like Candyland. Uh, not just Middle Earth, but all secondary worlds have the element of the scary. And there's actually delight in being scared, especially if you know you're not in any real risk at all, like in the secondary world or kind of like a carnival ride. Yeah. Uh, there's a hormonal component. Even our biology supports uh, the idea of there being something positive by being scared in the secondary world. Well, that is a good point. Uh, for Tolkien, the secondary world is definitely not a place without conflict or fear. There's good versus evil, and it's very obvious. In fact, that's what's distinctive about these stories that he writes. Good is clear. Evil is clear. It's obvious that the goblins are bad and that the elves are good. Sometimes in the real world, that's not as easy to see. In fact, that's what's good about it. You have no confusion about who is the good guy and who is the bad guy. There are conflicts between good and we can feel sensations of fear and anxiety, but these sensations aren't personal. So the vicarious nature of the conflicts can make us feel better about ourselves. We get to live through these adventures in the stories and through that, somehow that makes us a little more confident in our real lives. Well, last week, we also talked about archetypes, uh, that Jungian idea that certain characters are embedded in a collective human experience, and, and as a result, they resurface in all kinds of stories across cultures and across time. Tolkien studying mythology from all over Europe was really familiar with all these ideas, and he saw the different archetypes surface and resurface, and, and he used them extensively. And Bilbo is a small and likely hero, and he finds a wise counselor, and they form a band of travelers, and he confronts evil and basically grows up, although as a 50-year-old, I guess. <laughs> it can't really be a coming-of-age uh, story. Well, maybe if you live as long as a hobbit does. <laughs> <laughs> but we mentioned that the plot really isn't the thing, and I think that's important to understand. It's not what's fun about the story. It's not what we're supposed to be fascinated by. It's not what delights us in these books. It's really just the excuse to visit the secondary world. 
The fun is the world itself. And this is what put Tolkien at odds with the other <laughs> writers of his same time period. I think so, so. And I think it's important to understand not that what happens is unimportant, but that what makes the story great really isn't the plot at all. It's the landscape, the scenery, the world itself. Uh, meeting all the creatures and instead of just blowing past all those descriptions of orcs or the inside of the mountain uh, allow your mind to slow down and look around understanding that that is the point of the book and that keeps me from finding the book boring which i have to admit was a problem the first time i read it (laughs) Uh, or, or rushing to get out of the mountain and onto the next plot point. You just settle in for the ride. Exactly. There's no reason to rush through Middle Earth. Look around. It's beautiful. It's horrifying. It sparkles in places. And if you see an elf or a dwarf waving at you, take the time to wave back. <laughs> <laughs> and most importantly, don't forget, no moralizing or making allegories out of the creatures, uh, as he kept emphasizing over and over and over. <laughs> yes, no allegory. Trolls are just trolls. They don't represent German soldiers. They don't represent religious demons. There's nothing deliberate political or religious. But I will say, as you might expect me to do, I well, disagree a little bit. I think there is a little bit of subconscious symbol-making on Tolkien's part because there are themes, and I will speak to these when we run into them. So I don't believe Tolkien's search assertions entirely, but strictly speaking, we must understand there is no allegory or moralizing in Middle-earth. <laughs> and I would like to point out one more time, this is what put Tolkien at odds with the other writers They like the, the good irony and symbol. <laughs> yes, and the moralizing. Uh, one interesting thing about The Hobbit is that it was written as a personal story for Tolkien's sons, John, Michael, and Christopher. And uh, he wrote it to suit their taste as young boys and the things they loved. And I guess that's why there aren't any girl dwarves or <laughs> hobbits. They, they weren't in that sort of thing yet. I've thought about that, and if I were Priscilla, I might have had a complaint about the lack of a female hobbit. Of course. But (laughs) Tolkien was also entertaining himself, and myths and legends, and comparative philology, that's his field of study, which is comparing the origins of different languages, was his thing. He loved it. There was nothing that Tolkien, there's stories about this, that he loved better than to look at a street name and then figure out where that street got its name and then where the name got its name from that name. And then he'd go down, you know, the rabbit trail to figure out where was the origins of the origin of the origin. <laughs> um, I would say there is no accounting for taste because that field of study seems tremendously oh. dull, except... Uh, Tolkien somehow seemed to have made a lot of magic out of it. As close as I can come, as I remember as a child enjoying reading pages out of the dictionary. Oh, my goodness. Well, again, no accounting for taste. <laughs> <laughs> but he did make an adventure out of it, and I like the idea that this book is personal. Well, he was writing for what he knew. Have I ever brought that theme up? I think you may have mentioned it almost every time we do one of these. There you go. I mean, we beat that theme over and over again. But I love pointing out how the great stories are always like that. True. But in a very different way than what we saw in T.S. Eliot or Fitzgerald, he wrote this book just to delight all of them for bonding and for introducing the mythology he loved to his boys and really to all of us. So when I read this book, that's what I have in mind, this fatherly figure. Maybe it's story time, bedtime, and here he is talking about a surprise party and second breakfasts. There's a lot of 
father humor at the beginning. I know Tolkien called it silliness, and part of it he wasn't really proud of, and a lot of it he kind of left out, but a lot of it he kept, well, a little bit I've kept, but ridiculous line about the origins of golf. That's a total anachronism and out of step with the rest of his secondary world. (laughs) Well, what does Tolkien mean by silliness? Well, you feel it, especially at the beginning. Uh, And he thought it made him feel a, a little bit amateurish, and maybe it did. That direct language when he's talking to you, we call it in the theater, like breaking the fourth wall, uh, it kind of breaks the flow of the story, and he quits it. Towards the end of the book, he doesn't do it at all, and it changes the tone completely. And when he gets to writing The Lord of the Rings, there's nothing like that in there that would give it this kind of light feel. Had he written The Hobbit as a prequel, maybe he wouldn't have done any of that at all. But I like the idea that the story starts out very lighthearted, and the portal for entering Middle-earth you know, is magical feeling although it's not a train like in harry potter or a tornado like in dorothy or a wardrobe like in narnia bilbo just gets out the door leaves his own community a world that has coffee and scones and a postal service and routine and just keep going up the road and you're gonna find unexpected things starting with trolls (laughs) then goblins and of course magic or at least a magic ring. <laughs> well, I want to say something from the psychological perspective, because I think it's important to understand this, especially if you are a parent uh, or a guardian of a young child. Reading to children is actually an important way to validate a child. Uh, children dream and they have active imag- imaginations, and it's just part of their psychological development at that stage as a human being. And when an adult figure tells fairy stories and fairy tales, it demonstrates to a child that their inner experiences uh, are worthwhile and they're legitimate and real. I mean, if you can think of it that way. And by accepting the things that are active in their minds, they are accepted, their stories and all. So before there was a single replicated psychological study on this issue, Albert Einstein famously said this, and this is Albert Einstein speaking, If you want intelligent children, read them fairy tales. And if you want more intelligent children, read them more fairy tales. I guess that's a huge endorsement. (laughs) I guess it is. Well, Middle Earth, Tolkien's land, came from a lot of different places. And if you just pick up the book and start reading it, you really have this feeling that you don't know where you are. So I want to provide a little framework, even though that's cheating. But what's a podcast if not a study? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So here it goes. Tolkien made up this planet called Arda, and Middle-earth is a large continent right in the middle of Arda, and it's populated by all these creatures that he's made up, but he's made them up based on his study of Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, Germanic mythology. So from these mythologies, he invents these beings, and for Tolkien, the original being that's going to you know, began his world is called the Valor, V-A-L-A-R. They are these most powerful creatures. They don't have physical form. Uh, They existed before the world was created. So after the Valor comes the Mayor. 
I think of them like demigods, like we are familiar with with Greek mythology. Now, the mayors are immortal, but they can take human forms when they want to. The most famous of these, of course, is Gandalf, but there are others like Sauron, who makes a small appearance in The Hobbit, although he's evil. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Where are you getting this? This isn't in The Hobbit. No, it's not in The Hobbit. It's the history of Middle-earth, which did exist even though Hobbit's the first book. They came from the Silmarillion, which really is something that he made up. It's the basis of all of his mythology. So the backstory was already in his head, and he wrote from that when he wrote The Hobbit, because the secondary world was already in his head. But we don't know that. So as the reader... All of this is unexplained. All we know in the beginning is that hobbits live in a community that sounds an awful lot like the English stories we know of about this time, maybe 1895 out there (laughs) in middle class land. Uh, But when Gandalf shows up in the Shire to greet Bilbo, he's not a stranger. Tolkien already had his backstory completely fleshed out. And although me, as a reader, doesn't know who this man is or where it came from, it's obvious something is going on. Because somehow, when Gandalf starts telling all these stories about the past, there is coherence to them. Uh, We get the feeling that there is great depth to everything. And Gandalf has been around a long time, and he's part of a much, much larger story. We get that feeling because there is great depth to everything, and not just in Tolkien's head, because although he does absolutely make all this up, and Gandalf has a long and developed life well before he meets Bilbo that Tolkien has created, the story is even bigger and more complex than just Gandalf's personal story. Tolkien, as a philologist, had an infinite source of mythological characters to pull from, and so he does. We see this right here with these hilarious and horrible magical creatures that are named Bert, Tom, and William Huggins. <laughs> I know, and those names make me laugh. I mean, I know. Uh, the dwarves have these medieval-sounding names, I know, and I can just see little John Michael and Christopher laughing, maybe even wondering if they know somebody named Bert, Tom, or Williams. I don't know about that. I'm speculating, of course. But when Tolkien populated Middle Earth, he was populating them with something that actually already existed. Trolls were creatures from other stories, and usually we think of them as being Scandinavian, but they're trolls all over the world. We have trolls in Tennessee. If you go to Chattanooga to the top of Lookout Mountain, they've hidden 150 of them there that you can go and find. (laughs) Is that in Rock City? (laughs) Yes, that's exactly right. Oh, we've seen them. There are lots of them. (laughs) So Tolkien didn't invent trolls. But he invented his version of trolls by combining the different concepts from the different myths that he taught. So in the case of these three trolls, they came from Icelandic poems called the Eddas. And in the Eddas, there's a race called the Jotners. Now listen to how his brain works. So he takes the Jotners and he translates that Icelandic word into this other word that kind of sounds a little bit like ogres and he used that word for this for this beast when he translated the story Sir Gawain and the Green Knight which he had just done right before he wrote the hobbits so he takes this idea from the Icelandic stories and he combines it with this idea of trolls and there we go 
good grief. I mean, that's confusing, <laughs> but I think it's fascinating how his brain works. Well, it is. And although I could tell you the historical and mythological origins and combinations of all these creatures, I think that might be dull. <laughs> I'm going to guess that the average listener is not a philologist. <laughs> no. Uh, Tolkien knows all these stories, and he uses these stories to make up the world. So in the case of trolls, what he does is he shows us what they are in Middle Earth through Bilbo. And so we find out with Bilbo that trolls turn to stone because they stay up arguing all night and when the about cooking the dwarves, and then the sun comes out and boom, they're stoned. So now we know, oh, okay, so trolls are disgusting ogres. They eat things. They're stupid. They live in caves. They argue. They hoard treasures. And then we, from now on, know what trolls are. Yes. <laughs> he does the same thing with elves. Uh, Bilbo doesn't know what an elf is, and he even asks Randolph, Gandalf on their way to Rivendell. And Gandalf rudely replies, don't interrupt. You'll get there in a few days if we're lucky and find out all about it. So us, like Bilbo, have to wait to visit Rivendell. And when we do, which, by the way, Rivendell's my favorite place in all of Middle-earth, we get to figure out or learn what elves are. And again, elves already existed in mythology, but not the way that Tolkien does. In most mythologies, elves are not kind. We see this in the Grimm brothers where they steal things. But in Middle-earth, he's reinvented them. They're a race of human-like people. So we've got the elves, we've got the dwarves, and we've got the men. That's all we're going to have. Everything else is really not human-like. But the elves will find out they're different than humans. They're the first race. They're immortal. The Cimmerillion calls them the firstborn. Well, that needs to be explained a little bit because they're not totally immortal and that they can't die. They can be killed but they don't die of natural causes. <laughs> right. Uh, that's interesting. And it's really not portrayed as a good thing to be immortal. For Tolkien, and of course, this is his Christian worldview kicking in, although Hinduism also agrees with Christianity on this issue. Life forms, life doesn't die. Life, because it's life, is immortal. The difference between men and elves, and this is Tolkien's phrase, Tolkien says, men have the gift of death. I'm going to quote him. He says, this gift of freedom and the children of men dwell only a short space in the world alive and are not bound to it and depart soon, whether the elves know it. <laughs> I guess that's about as positive a spin <laughs> as you can put on mortality. Well, I think it is, except most men and most elves don't understand mortality as a gift. So a creature, we'll find out later, like Sauron and evil creatures, they use fear of death in men as a manipulative tool. What Tolkien will develop really in Lord of the Rings is what's the difference between an average man and a great man is that a great man understands mortality as a gift and isn't afraid of it. So if you're not afraid of something, it can't be used against you. A great man isn't afraid to die and, in fact, is capable of sacrificing his life for others. So there's you see the philosophy that gets embedded in the story, and it's what makes people want to call the story an allegory. And Tolkien says, no. <laughs> he forbids it. He forbids it. Uh, well, there can definitely be two ways of interpreting these thematic ideas. Uh, call it symbolism. Call it perspective. I mean, he's commenting on our world regardless. I agree. Well, I want to comment about the chapter about Rivendell because here again, we don't get the full sense of all the backstory. 
But we do clearly understand that there is more to Elrond and all of his people than what we or Bilbo can understand. Exactly. Tolkien can make us feel that way because there is more to understand and we'll definitely be revisiting it later because we revisit the elves later. But before we do, Bilbo has to go down to the underworld. This is not uncommon in lots of stories. Even in Proof Rock, they reference Dante's visit down to the Inferno. A classical <laughs> idea, right? And what is the purpose of going to the underworld? Why is that so archetypal? And what is the difference between trolls and orcs and goblins? Great questions. And when they're not that hard to answer. For starters, you know, going to hell and surviving it, that's how we change. Bilbo, at this point, really hasn't had enough problems in the Shire <laughs> to know who he is, what he's made of. Uh, now, let's, so that's one answer. Now, let's go back to these disgusting creatures. Uh, this is where Tolkien really makes us, you know, use our own imaginations because we don't know the differences between all these things, and we will. Uh, one thing to notice is that trolls are gigantic. We saw that. They turn to stone, and they're generally stupid. Orcs and goblins. Now, those are actually two words for the same creature. And The Hobbit, because it was Tolkien's first book, he uses the word goblin a lot. But he's going to shed that word. And it annoyed him. This is the kind of thing that only a philologist would be annoyed by. <laughs> it annoyed him because the word goblin is a Latin Greek word. And he wanted everything to be Anglo-Saxon. So he switched out the word goblin and started using the word orcs. And in The Lord of the Rings, all you see is orc, orc, orc. Although there are lots of different kinds of races of orcs. And some are grosser than others. And some are stronger than others. And some can handle light better than others. Historically, orcs or goblins are these crossbreeds between elves back in the days before hobbits existed. They're not immortal, but they live a long time, longer than humans, and they're grotesque, and they live underground in horrible dark caves, but they do need some light. They can't actually go in the total darkness, but they don't need a whole lot to see. Gollum, who we're going to find out, is not a troll or a goblin, or an orc. And he's very afraid of all of those kinds of things, <laughs> as, as he should be. be. Yes. Uh, and of course, I'm not an expert on mythology, but I've seen enough of these movies to know that in a lot of these quest stories, the hero is going to have a special weapon. And I noticed that Tolkien has also done that for Bilbo. Well, he has. And in fact, he's going to have two magical weapons. And they're going to, you know, they serve as kind of equalizers, for him to fight battles with foes that are bigger and more experienced than he is. The first is that little sword that glows when the goblins come by. But the second one, that's the one that's going to be the seed from which emerges the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. When Tolkien wrote The Hobbit, the ring was just a magic ring. But 12 years later, after he finished the trilogy, he had to go back and modify The Hobbit to make it more important in the story. We In The Hobbit, Bilbo accidentally finds the ring here in Chapter 5. He also meets Gollum here in Chapter 5, and Gollum is everyone's favorite evil character. We'll notice that Gollum, who has lived alone for a very long time, talks to himself in the third person. He calls himself my precious, 
But we will also see that he kind of also calls the ring my precious. Let's read Tolkien's introduction to this creature who inspired it all, Gollum. All right, I'll read that. I'm just going to warn you ahead of time, I'm not going to use the Gollum voice. (laughs) Because one, I can't imitate it. And number two, I can't understand half of it. (laughs) All right, give it a go. Deep down here by the dark water lived old Gollum, a small, slimy creature. I don't know where he came from, nor who or what he was. He was Gollum, as dark as darkness, except for two big, round, pale eyes in his thin face. He had a little boat, and he rowed about quite quietly on the lake, for lake it was, wide and deep and deadly cold. He paddled it with large feet dangling over the side, but never a ripple did he make. Not he. He was looking out for his pale, lamp-like eyes for blind fish, which he grabbed with his long fingers as quick as thinking. He liked meat, too. Goblin, he thought good when he could get it, but he took care they never found him out. He just throttled them from behind. If they ever came down alone anywhere near the edge of the water while he was prowling about, they very seldom did, for they had a feeling that something unpleasant was lurking down there down at the very roots of the mountain. They had come on the lake when they were tunneling down long ago, and they found they could go no farther. So there their road ended in that direction, and there was no reason to go that way unless the great goblin sent them. Sometimes he took a fancy for fish from the lake, and sometimes neither goblin nor fish came back. Actually, Gollum lived on a slimy island of rock in the middle of the lake, He was watching Bilbo now from the distance with his pale eyes like telescopes. Bilbo could not see him, but he was wondering a lot about Bilbo, for he could see that he was no goblin at all. Gollum got into his boat and shot off from the island while Bilbo was sitting on the brink, altogether flummoxed and at the end of his way in his wits. Suddenly up came Gollum and whispered and hissed, "'Bless us and splash us, my precious. I guess it's a choice feast, at least a tasty morsel.' It make us Gollum. And when he said Gollum, he made a horrible swallowing noise in his throat. That is how he got his name, though he always called himself My Precious. My Precious. (laughs) You do a better version of the voice than I could. Well, that famous interaction between Gollum and Bilbo is what's going to make the entire Lord of the Rings series work. They start off with the series of riddles, and this idea of jousting with riddles comes straight out of Anglo-Saxon and Icelandic mythology, but riddles are important, and we see them in stories from all over the world. If you know anything about Norse mythology, we've all seen those movies, and the god Odin, he's famous for making riddles and riddle contests. Uh, What we have here is that Gollum and Bilbo go back and forth, and they have to answer each other's riddles. This is the very traditional form and it has all these rules that of course we don't know but Bilbo is going to pull a move that has been done before by others but it's technically if you know about Whittle Wars is cheating it's not fair Uh, because he asks a question that the questioner knows the answer to but there's no way that any other person could reasonably know the answer in this case uh Bilbo and Gollum 
both clearly understand that Bilbo is cheating. <laughs> well, and I think it's so funny that there's like uh, honor. I know, honor. Kind of, we're, we're supposed to abide by rules, uh, although the loser may die. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, this is what's called a neck riddle, uh, which is one that you use to save your own neck. And <laughs> another famous neck riddle is in the Bible, by the way, when Samson makes up riddles with Delilah. And Delilah should have never have known the answer to Samson's neck riddle, but he foolishly tells her, and so she's able to capture him. (laughs) Well, exactly. Bilbo's famous neck riddle is this. What have I got in my pocket? Let's read what Gollum says. Here, you can be Gollum. Okay. Just, Just his answer. Not fair. Not fair, he hissed. It isn't fair, my precious, is it, to ask us what it's got in its nasty little pocketses. Bilbo, seeing what had happened and having nothing better to ask, stuck to his question. What have I got in my pocket? He said louder. Hissed Gollum. It must give us three guesses, my precious three guesses. Very well. Guess away, said Bilbo. (laughs) This is part of what Tolkien added later. In the original 1937 edition of The Hobbit, Gollum, genuinely willing to bet his ring on the riddle game, uh, gives wants to give Bilbo the present if he won. Gollum is dismayed when he can't find the ring, and he shows Bilbo the way out as a way of kind of being nice, as a courtesy. This is not what we read now. Uh, in writing The Lord of the Rings and the nature of the ring change, it was impossible to have him just give it up. It became a magical device with irresistible power, And so Gollum's behavior wouldn't have been explainable. He goes back and rewrites the chapter the way that it is now. And now Gollum never has any intention. He was never going to give away the ring. And he wasn't even going to show Bilbo the way out. Let's read this more insidious version. (laughs) Another point to note is that in the revised version, Gollum is really wretched and evil. In the original version, he's really not. In this new version... Gollum is an addict. He's addicted to the ring, so he's enslaved by it. He can't give it up, but the ring also torments him. The concept is it's a ruling ring. Not far away was his island, of which Bilbo knew nothing, and there in his hiding place he kept a few wretched oddments, and one very beautiful thing, very beautiful, very wonderful. He had a ring, a golden ring, a precious ring. My birthday present, he whispered to himself, as he had often done in the endless dark days. That's what we want now. Yes, we want it. He wanted it because it was a ring of power. And if you slipped that ring on your finger, you were invisible. Only in the full sunlight could you be seen, and then only by your shadow, and that would be shaky and faint. My birthday present. It came to me on my birthday, my precious So he had always said to himself, but who knows how Gollum came by that present ages ago in the old days when such things were still at large in the world. Perhaps even the master who ruled him could not have said. Gollum used to wear it at first till it tired him, and then he kept it in a pouch next to his skin till it galled him. And now usually he hid it in a hole in a rock on his island and was always going back to look at it. And still sometimes he put it on when he could not bear to be parted from it any longer or when he was very, very hungry and tired of fish. Then he would creep along dark passages looking for stray goblins. 
He might even venture into places where the torches were lit and made his eyes blink and smart, for he would be safe. Oh yes, quite safe. No one would see him. No one would notice him till he had his fingers on their throat. Only a few hours ago, he had worn it and caught a small goblin imp. How it squeaked. He still had a bone or two left to gnaw, but he wanted something softer. <laughs> wow. So it's a change for sure. And I bet those early editions of The Hobbit are worth a fortune now. I'm sure they are. The last thing I want to point out, and what I think is the most important point of all to see as we leave Chapter 5 and Bilbo finally gets out of the underworld, uh, is that Bilbo is going to be your cult. Tolkien creates a different kind of hero in the story than in the traditional myths that he had studied because he's going to give Bilbo a Christian virtue that he didn't see in the other ancient myths. Bilbo has one character trait that's unusual. He has the ability to show mercy. He feels pity, and he's going to treat Gollum here with unmerited kindness. That's not anything you would expect. Let's read that part. Bilbo almost stopped breathing and went stiff himself. He was desperate. He must get away out of this horrible darkness while he had any strength left. He must fight. He must stab the most foul thing, put its eye out, kill it. It meant to kill him. No, not a fair fight. He was invisible now. Gollum had no sword. Gollum had not actually threatened to kill him or tried to yet. And he was miserable, alone, lost. A sudden understanding, a pity mixed with horror, welled up in Bilbo's heart. A glimpse of endless, unmarked days without light or hope of betterment. Hard stone, cold fish, sneaking and whispering. All these thoughts passed in a flash of a second. He trembled, and then quite suddenly in another flash, as if lifted by a new strength and resolved, he leaped. No great leap for a man, but a leap in the dark. Straight over Gollum's head he jumped, seven feet forward and three in the air. Indeed, had he known it, he had only just missed cracking his skull on the low arch of the passage. Gollum threw himself backwards and grabbed as the hobbit flew over him, but too late, his hand snapped on thin air, and Bilbo, falling fair on his sturdy feet, sped off down the new tunnel. He did not turn to see what Gollum was doing. There was a hissing and cursing almost at his heels at first, then it stopped. All at once there came a blood-curdling shriek, filled with hatred and despair. Gollum was defeated. He dared to go no further. He had lost lost his prey, and lost, too, the only thing he had ever cared for, his precious. The cry brought Bilbo's heart to his mouth, but he still held on. Now faint as an echo, but menacing, the voice came behind. Thief! 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 Baggins! We hates it! We hates it! We hates it forever! <laughs> and, of course, that's how Bilbo gets away, putting on the magic ring and escaping. And you see that when he does, he has this moral conundrum because now it's not what he thinks is a fair fight. And he spares, of course, Gollum's life. And this is what Harold Bloom saw as moralizing. But Tolkien sees it as just Tolkien being Tolkien. In Tolkien's world, he gets to create a hero that he wants to have. And for him, a hero is someone who is big enough to have mercy 
even if the person on whom you express your mercy is completely undeserving and hates you forever. In Tolkien's world, the universe rewards mercy, although we know sometimes in the real world, no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> As they say. Uh, and they often don't. But one other thing I noticed here, and, and I know it's time to call it for the day, but I think it's worth mentioning. There's a lot of psychology in this little section about Bilbo escaping. Uh, Bilbo, is, Bilbo is facing just not goblins and Gollum, but Bilbo is facing fear itself. I mean, the dark, the risk of death. And although in this context, it's fantasy and uh, otherworldly and unrealistic. Facing things that frighten us is very much a part of what life is about and often is what makes a difference between what we view as a strong person and a weak one. I mean, it builds confidence. Well, of course, I agree with you. And perhaps it's our ability to see ourselves in The Hobbit is what makes this story great for children, for adults, for all of us, because we love rooting for this Hobbit, the brave, the merciful Bilbo Baggins. (laughs) Well, next week, we'll pick up where Bilbo meets with his traveling companions again, and we'll see where they end up. Thanks for being with us. We hope you enjoyed this look at The Hobbit. We always like to ask you to send an episode to a friend and help us grow the podcast. And we invite you to check us out on all of our social media and on our website, howtolovelivepodcast.com. And we will see you next time. Peace out. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.